This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We are here today to consider nominees for five important positions in North Africa and Central Asia. Uh, Mr. Puneet Talwar to be ambassador to Morocco, uh, Joey Hood to be ambassador to Tunisia, Daniel Rosenblum to be ambassador to Kazakhstan, uh, Dr. Jonathan Henrik to be ambassador to Uzbekistan, uh, and Leslie Viguri to be uh, Viguri to be ambassador uh, to the Kyrgyz Republic. Thank you all uh, for your service, for your willingness to take on these roles, to your families uh, and friends who are here supporting you. Um, we are about to have two votes on the floor of the Senate, so I apologize in advance that um, my ranking member today, Senator Young, and I will each depart in order to keep this confirmation hearing moving and yet allow us to participate in voting on a very important piece of legislation of which Senator Young was the leading Republican. I understand Senator Sheehan uh, will first be introducing uh, nominee Joey Hood. Senator Sheehan, please proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and ranking member Young. I'm delighted to be here this morning to introduce Joey Hood to this committee and want to congratulate all of the nominees who are here this morning and thank them all for their service to the country. But my primary reason for being here this morning is to introduce Mr. Hood, who is a career member of the Foreign Service. He joined the State Department in 1998, and for the last 25 years, he has worked diligently to advance U.S. interests around the world. Um, Yet, throughout his career, Mr. Hood has not shied away from hard problems. He's worked to advance human rights in Eritrea, to support our allies in Afghanistan and Iraq. He's advocated for the Yazidis and the Iraqi Christians as they were being persecuted by ISIS. So he's been willing to take on some difficult challenges. He's also forged strong ties with other countries and facilitated many congressional delegations in their work abroad, in fact, Many on this committee, I know, as well as on the Armed Services Committee, may know Mr. Hood from our foreign travel. I had the honor of joining him at the embassy when I was in Iraq in 2019, and he put on a very nice spread for us and really filled us in on what was happening in Iraq at the time. But not only is Mr. Hood a distinguished career foreign service officer, he is a native of the great state of New Hampshire. Mr. Hood grew up in Hinsdale, New Hampshire, which is in the western part of our state. His mother drove a school bus and served as a substitute teacher, and his father worked for the post office in Vermont for 40 years. He still owns a home in Keene, and his children have joined the storied New Hampshire tradition of going to summer camp at Stonewall Farm and Camp Dakota, and I'm delighted to also this morning be able to welcome his wife, Anna, and his children, Fiona and Henry. So, who, who are both staying in New Hampshire. And as someone who has dedicated his life to serving the United States abroad, who has made the sacrifices that come with such service, I am so honored that he still considers New Hampshire his home and that he's raised a family who considers themselves Granite Staters. So I urge this committee to swiftly move his nomination forward, as well as the nominations of all of those people we're hearing from this morning, I look forward to continuing to work with him in his new role as ambassador to Tunisia once we do. 
So thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. I will make a brief opening statement regarding each of the five nominees, then turn to my ranking member, Senator Young, for his opening statement. Then we will turn to each of you uh, in turn for your opening statements. Mr. Talwar, it's a, a pleasure chairing your confirmation hearing to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Morocco. Um, our work together um, has been a highlight of my public service over many years. Your service as Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs makes you very well suited for serving in one of our most important regional security partners, and I look forward to hearing what your priorities will be for the U.S.-Morocco relationship if confirmed. Mr. Hood, a granite stater, you've been nominated at a critical moment for Tunisia, which is facing systemic attempts to dismantle its fledgling democracy, the shuttering of the parliament, the firing of judges, and the series of constitutional changes consolidating presidential authority uh, gravely concern me. Uh, you have, as Senator Shaheen just referenced, an impressive record of service, including as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Near Eastern Affairs, and I look forward uh, to hearing how you will respond to democratic backsliding in Tunisia if confirmed. Um, we also have three nominees before us uh, for critical Central Asian countries at the crossroads of influence by China and Russia. Um, if I could, uh, Ambassador Rosenblum, I welcome your nomination, um, your previous experience as ambassador to Uzbekistan. I look forward to hearing how you will help Kazakhstan, the region's largest economy, reduce its reliance on Russia. Uh, Dr. Hennick, I welcome your experience as uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary for South and Central Asian Affairs. Uzbekistan's an important regional leader and distributor of humanitarian aid, <coughs> including to Afghanistan. And look forward to hearing how you will support Uzbekistan's desired reforms and leadership on humanitarian aid. Uh, and finally, uh, Mr. Vigudi, uh, glad to see your nomination for ambassador to the Kyrgyz Republic, which has until recently been known in Central Asia as one of the most democratic countries. And I know your experience as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Central Asia and Pakistan Affairs will be invaluable. Look forward to hearing uh, how each of you will address uh, expanding PRC influence and, in your case, a faltering commitment to democracy. Um, I'll now turn to my ranking member, Senator Young of Indiana. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I too, want to thank our five nominees today for their willingness and, in some cases, their continued willingness to serve the United States in these important positions. I look forward to hearing from all our nominees today and how they will advance American leadership and interests in these countries. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and our collective response have damaged its economy and demonstrated to its neighbors that it cannot be trusted nor depended upon. China's domestic COVID-19 response has similarly demonstrated its unreliability as an economic partner. The weeks-long lockdown of Shanghai showcases how the Communist Party would prefer to jeopardize its own growth rather than admit failure. Through this, we have a unique opportunity to showcase the value of deepening partnerships with the United States and our allies and resisting the draw of these authoritarian regimes. Now is a crucial moment for the United States to embrace the collective capabilities of our allies and partners as we turn our attention to strategic great power competition. If we want to succeed in this competition, we must find the best way forward to balance our interests while remaining the partner of choice for those around the globe. Unlike in years past, these countries have options for economic and security partnerships. In the case of Morocco, we have a continued partner looking to us and, and we make good on our commit uh, as, as we make good on our commitments. I also hope to hear how we can build upon the success of the Abraham Accords and deepen ties between Morocco and Israel 
in addition to the United States. In Tunisia, the world is waiting to see the path it will take, as well as the impact on its people and fledgling democratic institutions. In the case of our Central Asian partners, Russia's unprovoked aggression has prompted a wholesale reassessment of each country's relationships with their neighbors and beyond. Our task must be to enforce and uphold our standards while recognizing unattainable goals may drive our would-be partners to yield to the siren song of Chinese and Russian influence. We cannot ignore the need to advance our diplomatic and humanitarian priorities, and if our policy actions drive our partners into the arms of Russia and China, we will be undercutting these very priorities. Our witnesses will be approaching all of these challenges from different perspectives, and I look forward to hearing their views on this conversation. Thank you again to our nominees for their willingness to serve the United States and their respective roles. I look forward to our discussion this morning. Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Young. We will now hear uh, from each of today's nominees in the order in which they were noticed to this committee. Um, please keep your opening remarks to no more than five minutes. Um, your written testimonies uh, will be submitted in full to the record. Um, first up would be Mr. Puneet Tolwar. Puneet. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, um, and thank you for the kind words in your introduction. Uh, it's been a privilege to know you for so long, um, and I cherish the time that I was able to spend in your office. And I have to say that your, your tenure here in the Senate has really been a model of public service, and your cooperation with the ranking member, I think, has set the gold standard for bipartisan cooperation. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Young, who I know is happily for a vote, um, it's been an honor. Uh, it's an honor to return to the committee as President Biden's nominee to be the ambassador, U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of Morocco. I want to thank the President and, the, and Secretary Blinken for the trust and confidence in me. I have great respect for this committee. I have seen firsthand your strong commitment to advancing our national interests. If confirmed, I look forward to consulting closely with you and hopefully welcoming you when you visit. I'm joined today by my wife, Sarosh, and my sons, Hadis and Idias. My parents, brother, and sister are watching from home. Mr. Chairman, Morocco is a long-standing and valued partner. Indeed, it was the first country to recognize American independence with a strategic location, Morocco is a bridge between Europe, the Mediterranean, and Africa, regions that are critical to American national security. Morocco is a leader on, re on key regional and global issues. It is at the forefront of efforts to combat terrorism. It has taken bold steps on the climate crisis. Morocco is also dedicated to economic development in Africa, and last week, it hosted the U.S.-Africa Business Summit. I want to highlight Morocco's leadership on peace with Israel. The relationship between the two countries is blossoming. It now spans cooperation on investment, energy, aviation, and many other areas. Morocco was the first Arab country to sign a defense cooperation agreement with Israel. And last week, the chief of staff of the Israel Defense Forces made a landmark visit to Morocco. In March, Morocco's foreign minister attended the inaugural meeting of the Negev Forum. The vision of a warm peace that has eluded the region for so long is finally coming into focus thanks to the Abraham Accords and Morocco's growing ties with Israel. If confirmed, I will support translating that vision into tangible improvements in the lives of ordinary people so that we can expand the circle of peace, something which ultimately serves American interests. 
With respect to the conflict in Western Sahara, last fall, the United Nations Secretary General appointed a seasoned diplomat, Stefan de Mistura, as his personal envoy to work with the parties in a renewed push for peace. He is someone I have known for many years, and if confirmed, I will support his efforts to promote a just and durable political solution. Domestically, Morocco has an ambitious reform and development agenda that emphasizes expanding the private sector. If confirmed, I will support Morocco's reform program, and I will strongly advocate for American exports. I will also support the advancement of human rights. Mr. Chairman, I've been immersed in policy toward this region for 30 years. My formative years were spent in this very room on the benches behind you. I built on that experience at the National Security Council and in a senior diplomatic position as Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs. These roles have given me a reservoir of directly relevant experience to draw upon should I be confirmed. I'd like to close uh, with a few words about my family. I could not have made it this far were it not for the unconditional support and love of my wife, Sarosh, who steadfastly supported me through the long hours I've logged in public service. She did that even as she pursued her own career and raised the two fine gentlemen you see behind me. This is also an especially meaningful moment for my parents. It's the culmination of a journey that began 60 years ago when they took a leap of faith and left India for America with little more than their dreams. They sacrificed and endured a great deal so that my brother, sister, and I would have opportunities they never had. We are forever grateful to them. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Tolwar. Next, Dr. Hennig. Okay, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and distinguished members of this committee, I too am deeply grateful for the confidence President Biden and Secretary Blinken have entrusted me with this nomination. If confirmed, I will work closely with you to strengthen bilateral relations with Uzbekistan. I too would like to thank my wife and partner, Dominique Frere, as well as my son and daughter, Oscar and Carmen. As you know, Foreign Service families make enormous sacrifices over the course of our careers and I simply could not have served our country without their steadfast support. I am also forever in debt to my parents, Betty and Steve, for their support and for sparking my interest in international affairs and public service. I regret that my father, a Marine Corps helicopter pilot and Vietnam veteran, before spending a career opening foreign markets to US, to US commercial products, did not live to see this day. I know that he would have been proud. This nomination is the culmination of my lifelong interest in this region. At university, I majored in Soviet area studies with a focus on Central Asia. I spent a semester abroad and traveled to Uzbekistan before its independence. When I joined the Foreign Service, I jumped at the opportunity to do my very first overseas assignment at our newly established embassy in Tashkent. I have also spent much of my career working in and with this region, and I am beyond excited at the possibility to go back if confirmed in this new capacity. Located at the heart of Central Asia, Uzbekistan is a country rich in history with a young and growing population and significant potential for a prosperous future. A strong U.S. relationship with Uzbekistan has implications that extend beyond our bilateral agenda to the other countries of Central Asia, to Afghanistan, Turkey, and the Indo-Pacific region. At the core of this relationship, now just over 30 years old, 
is the United States' steadfast support for Uzbekistan's independence, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. Uzbekistan has become an increasingly dynamic player in Central Asia since adopting a broad-based program of political, economic, and social reforms in 2016. We welcome these developments and have partnered with Uzbekistan to implement reforms that advance respect for human rights, foster democratic governance, and promote equitable economic growth. As a career diplomat, I have seen firsthand the power of building relationships and engaging in public diplomacy, and how this can benefit individuals and civil society. If confirmed, I will work to continue and improve upon already significant initiatives to strengthen Uzbekistan's educational system and to facilitate exchange opportunities. These impressive efforts are a testament to the strengthening bilateral relationship between the United States and Uzbekistan. I will also work to expand and deepen our cooperation with the government of Uzbekistan to stay the course on reforms. I will encourage the development of accountable democratic institutions, a flourishing civil society and independent media, the strengthening of rule of law, and the protection of human rights for all, especially those who are most vulnerable and marginalized, including women, religious minorities, and LGBTQI plus persons. Uzbekistan has also made progress modernizing its economy, aiming to rebuild the international connections that place the country at the center of historic trade routes. Uzbekistan's natural resources, as well as its manufacturing and agricultural capacity, are attracting growing interest from American companies, including those seeking alternatives to Xinjiang-sourced cotton. Uzbekistan has also become a regional leader on green economic initiatives with its ambitious plans for renewable energy and as one of only two Central Asian countries to sign the Global Methane Pledge. A prosperous, greener Uzbekistan that generates jobs for its people and diversifies its international trade is very much in the interest of the United States. As the government continues its preparations for accession to the World Trade Organization, I will underscore the importance of improving the investment climate and institutionalizing international labor standards. I will also prioritize the expansion of the U.S. security partnership. Uzbekistan has long been an important partner in supporting Afghanistan's stability, and if confirmed, I look forward to strengthening bilateral and regional security cooperation, including on law enforcement matters, border security, and counterterrorism. Finally, I would endeavor to foster an inclusive work environment at, at our embassy, consistent with the administration's and this committee's vision of a State Department workforce that values collegiality, teamwork, and respect. The diversity of the American people is our greatest strength, and it is important that U.S. embassies model that diversity, uh, especially in places like Uzbekistan, where our values are not widely understood or worse, are actively misrepresented by malign actors. If confirmed, I will seek to advance U.S. interests and enhance our strategic partnership with Uzbekistan by strengthening our bilateral security, people-to-people -people ties, economic ties, and promoting the democratic values that we share. Thank you again for the opportunity to appear here today. I welcome your questions. Thank you. Mr. Vigori. Good morning, Chairman Coons. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you today, and thank you for considering my nomination to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the Kyrgyz Republic. I'd like to start by thanking my family, my wife, Catherine, who's here with me today, and my three children, William, George, and Clara. They've been my support through hardship posts, lengthy periods of separation, and frequent moves. They've also shared with me the honor of serving our country abroad, an honor for which I've always been deeply grateful. I'd also like to thank all the friends and colleagues who have supported me over my 30-year career in the Foreign Service. 
Their examples showed me the best aspects of leadership, including the importance of building strong teams in morale, valuing diversity, and mentoring the next generation of U.S. diplomats. These values guide me today, and if confirmed, I will have no higher priority than the safety and security of the embassy community. The United States and the Kyrgyz Republic recently marked 30 years of diplomatic relations. Much has happened in this time. The United States has been a strong partner to the Kyrgyz Republic from the beginning, providing generous support, including more than $10.4 million in COVID-related aid during the pandemic. U.S. assistance helped Kyrgyz efforts to develop the country's democratic institutions, its vibrant civil society, and its independent media. Since 1993, we've supported the American University of Central Asia, where tens of thousands of the region's best and brightest have received U.S. accredited degrees. If confirmed, I will work to build on the progress of the last three decades and ensure that our relationship fulfills its potential. The United States and the Kyrgyz Republic share many goals and a mutual interest in working together to achieve them. The Kyrgyz Republic has stated its commitment to fighting corruption and organized crime. In this effort, it will find no better partner than the United States. We hope to strengthen security cooperation to address challenges such as disaster preparedness and countering transnational threats. The United States is committed to supporting Kyrgyz economic resilience, connectivity, and diversification beyond its traditional partners by developing the country's knowledge economy which a thriving IT sector drives job creation and connection to the global economy. The Kyrgyz Republic has demonstrated environmental leadership in Central Asia as the first in the region to join the Global Methane Pledge. The United States is also committed to supporting human rights and democratic institutions in the Kyrgyz Republic. Kyrgyzstan has a unique record in this region. We're proud of our longstanding support for the Kyrgyz Republic's energetic civil society and its efforts to build accountable democratic institutions and strengthen the rule of law. It is critical that Kyrgyz leadership safeguards the gains made over the last 30 years and upholds media freedom, elevates the role of civil society, protects the human rights of all its people, including members of all minority groups, and strengthens judicial independence. If confirmed, I will advocate for Kyrgyz civil society and speak out against erosion of democratic governance, corruption, and threats to freedom of speech and association in accordance with the values we share with the Kyrgyz people. For 30 years, the United States has stressed our support for the sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity of the Kyrgyz Republic. If confirmed, I will emphasize the importance of holding Russia to account for its aggression in Ukraine including the enforcement of sanctions on Russia. I will also advocate for Kyrgyz leadership to promote accountability for the PRC's use of forced labor, as well as its genocide and crimes against humanity against Uyghurs and members of other ethnic and religious minority groups, including ethnic Kyrgyz in Xinjiang. Mr. Chairman, there's ample potential in the U.S.-Kyrgyz bilateral relationship. If confirmed, I look forward to partnering with this committee and Congress to reinvigorate our ties and achieve mutual objectives that benefit not only our two countries, but the whole of Central Asia. Thank you again for considering my nomination, and I look forward to answering any questions you might have.
Thank you, Mr. Vigudi. Ambassador Rosenblum. Thank you. Good morning, Chairman Coons. I'm honored to be here today as the President's nominee for U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Kazakhstan. And I'm pleased that my wife Sharon and son Jonah are with me as well. The journey that led me here started in the Cleveland suburb of Middleburg Heights, Ohio. My mother was a teacher who modeled the values of respect, empathy, and tolerance. My father worked for 30 years as a NASA scientist while in his spare time organizing a grassroots movement to advocate for the rights of Soviet Jews. My parents' example inspired me to pursue a career in public service and international affairs. I studied Russian history, language, and literature as an undergraduate, and later pursued a master's degree in Soviet studies. In between, I worked for and was inspired by an outstanding public servant, Senator Carl Levin of Michigan. He took this chamber's oversight role seriously, and in that spirit, if confirmed, I look forward to collaborating closely with the U.S. Congress, and particularly with the members of this committee, to promote U.S. interests and values in our relationship with the Republic of Kazakhstan. In my four years as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Central Asia, and currently as Ambassador to Uzbekistan, I've often been asked why the United States cares about this region, what U.S. national interests are served by devoting time, attention, and resources to these faraway countries. My answer is straightforward. We care because what happens there directly affects the security of the United States and its citizens. We want these countries to develop as stable, prosperous, and friendly U.S. partners because we know that if they don't, we will pay the price here at home. At the same time, it is not in our long-term security or economic interest for a single power to dominate this region. We are much better off having mutually beneficial relations with a diverse group of sovereign countries, both big and small, in Eurasia and Central Asia. Now, the government and people of Kazakhstan have appreciated America's steadfast support for their independent sovereignty and territorial integrity since 1991. My goal, if confirmed, will be to partner with the government and people of Kazakhstan to ensure that they remain free to determine their own policies and chart their own future. After centuries under the rule of external powers and 30-plus years now as citizens of an independent nation, the people of Kazakhstan understand full well why the principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity are critical to the maintenance of a stable international order. If confirmed, I will emphasize the importance of holding Russia accountable for its aggression against Ukraine. I will also advocate that Kazakhstan promote accountability for the PRC's atrocities against Uyghurs and members of other religious and ethnic minority groups, including a million and a half ethnic Kazakhs living in Xinjiang. Mr. Chairman, the U.S.-Kazakhstan bilateral relationship is already strong. If confirmed, I hope to deepen and broaden it even further in ways that not only benefit our two countries, but the whole of Central Asia. Kazakhstan has long been a leader in efforts to better integrate the five Central Asian nations. If confirmed, I will continue to seek new ways to promote such regional cooperation, including through the C5 plus one diplomatic platform. 
My number one priority, if confirmed, will be to ensure the safety and health of my embassy and consulate teams, as well as any and all American citizens in Kazakhstan. I also intend to make it a priority to first deepen our security and law enforcement partnership, to pursue our shared goals in the region, including countering terrorism and other transnational threats. Second, to encourage Kazakhstan to implement the sweeping reforms it initiated in the wake of serious civil unrest in January. It's critical that Kazakhstan's leadership live up to its pledges to uphold media freedom, elevate the role of civil society, strengthen judicial independence, and protect the fundamental rights and freedoms of all its people. And third, to increase people-to-people -people interactions and expand our economic, educational, scientific, and cultural ties. Nothing will help solidify the foundations of U.S.-Kazakhstani partnership more than creating strong connections between the people of our two nations. Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, I pledge to work closely with you to support America's growing strategic partnership with Kazakhstan. Thank you very much, Ambassador Rosenblum. Mr. Hood. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I want to thank uh, Senator Shaheen for that wonderful introduction. I'm honored by President Biden's and Secretary Blinken's trust in me and by the support of my wife, Anne, and children, Fiona and Henry. If confirmed, my most important priority as ambassador would be the safety and security of Americans living in and visiting Tunisia. My next priority would be to help put, Tunis put, to, excuse me, to put Tunisia on a more stable and prosperous trajectory. A longstanding U.S. partner and major non-NATO ally, Tunisia now finds itself suffering the global repercussions of Putin's brutal aggression in Ukraine, grappling with rising food prices and spiking energy prices. Putin's war of choice has exacerbated Tunisia's economic crisis and quick action is needed to reverse this trajectory. If confirmed, I would promote a vision of inclusive and open economic growth. The government is negotiating an agreement with the IMF, and this could be a step toward reforms that would benefit all Tunisians. Tunisia could also improve its investment in cl uh, climate by focusing on infrastructure and secure technology. If confirmed, I would advocate for U.S. companies to help provide these. As Tunisians grapple with these economic challenges, They've experienced an alarming erosion of de democratic norms and fundamental freedoms over the past year, reversing many hard-fought gains since they overthrew a dictator in 2011. President Kais Sayed's actions over the past year to suspend democratic governance and consolidate executive power have raised serious questions. The United States, both on our own and in coordination with our group of seven partners, has advocated for a swift return to democratic governance. We've urged an inclusive democratic reform process, emphasized continued protection of fundamental freedoms, and insisted on respect for judicial independence and rule of law. I'd continue this engagement if confirmed and encourage Tunisia's leaders to rapidly reestablish a democratic government accountable to their people. Tunisians have made clear that their demands for greater economic prosperity must not come at the expense of their hard-won democracy or human rights. I agree with that and ascribe to the administration's view that the U.S.-Tunisia 
bilateral relationship is strongest when there's a shared commitment to democratic values, human rights, and fundamental freedoms. We continue to review our assistance programs to assure that they align with our values and interests. If confirmed, I would use all tools of U.S. influence to advocate for a return to democratic governance and mitigate Tunisians suffering from Putin's devastating war, economic mismanagement, and political upheaval. Tunisian leaders' recognition that a vibrant civil society is a partner, not an adversary, has been a key reason for its democratic success. Civil society has demonstrated dynamism and resiliency in representing the aims and demands of the Tunisian people. If confirmed, I would continue to support civil society and engage regularly with the government to protect fundamental freedoms. I would also urge that political reforms and parliamentary elections announced for later this year are transparent and inclusive. Amid this political upheaval, I understand that the Tunisian military has remained an apolitical and professional force that reports to civilian leaders. If confirmed, I would work to ensure this remains the case and look for new avenues of collaboration on U.S. security priorities, particularly against global terrorist threats, while further strengthening human rights protections. The normalization of relations with Israel, including through the historic Abraham Accords, has led to greater peace and security in the region and deepened opportunities for expanded economic growth and productivity. If confirmed, I would support further efforts to normalize diplomatic and economic relations with the State of Israel in the region. Thank you, Mr. Ranking Member, members of this committee for this opportunity. If confirmed, I look forward to leading the team of professionals at our embassy and working with you to advance U.S. interests and strengthen our shared values in Tunisia. I look forward to your questions. Well, I thank all of our nominees for uh, their statements. Um, Mr. Rosenblum, Kazakhstan has, has been a steadfast partner uh, with the United States on a number of issues, from our use of its spaceport uh, for our astronauts to access the uh, International Space Station, to its commitment to protect our personnel and consulate during political unrest in Almaty. However, Kazakhstan has thus far taken a neutral stance on Ukraine, declining to support either side in this war of Russian aggression. Kazakhstan's commitment of humanitarian aid to Ukraine, as well as its additional defense spending, indicate anxiety about Russian geopolitical ambitions. This is despite continuing uh, military partnership per media reporting on Kazakhstan's participation in upcoming Russian military exercises. Sir, what steps would you take to encourage Kazakhstan to take more decisive steps to counter Russian aggression? Senator, uh, Senator Young, thank you for that question. It uh, will definitely be at the center of my attention, as it is for all of us now, um, the effects of the war in Ukraine in the region. Uh, first of all, I want to say that uh, our support, as I mentioned in my statement, for Kazakhstan's sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence has been consistent and remains strong. And that will be a, an organizing principle of everything I do in Kazakhstan, if confirmed. Secondly, um, I, we do recognize the reality of Kazakhstan's geographical and historical and economic position in the region. They share a 4,700-mile border with Russia. Russia is their main trading partner, main source of investment, and that is a reality that, that they have to deal with. Um, 
As you pointed out, Kazakhstan has remained neutral in the conflict uh, in the, with respect to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and at the same time have stated publicly and clearly that they will not recognize the independence of the so-called Lugansk and Donetsk republics. They've also stated publicly that they will do everything in their power to not undermine the sanctions regime against Russia and have worked very closely with us to make sure that they don't cross that line. And they've also said that they will not support the deployment of any Kazakhstani troops through the Collective Security Treaty Organization with Russian-led um, alliance that they belong to, military group. So all of those things we take as positive steps. And if confirmed, when I go, I will reinforce that, the importance of them remaining at a minimum neutral, and also reinforce what the Kazakhstani leadership itself has said, which is they recognize they're too dependent on Russia, especially for their trade and their oil exports, and need to diversify. And anything we can do to help them diversify, we will. Well, sir, I, I think you've done a very good job of contextualizing uh, the diplomatic and, and uh, economic and other challenges uh, the country faces on account of its, uh, its, its geography um, and uh, history and, and uh, other factors. So um, I do think that it's a positive. You laid out many positives, and, and uh, perhaps that's something we can, we can build on as well as it relates to uh, the situation in Ukraine. How would you ensure further, sir, that Kazakhstan does not fall into China's sphere of influence as it seeks closer ties with other nations? So uh, again, there are realities that Kazakhstan faces with respect to China, and China is a very important source of investment in their oil and gas sector, um, one of their major trading partners. Um, at the same time, Kazakhstan practices and they publicly declare what they call multi-vector diplomacy. And multi-vector to them means that they have to maintain important relationships and uh, mutually beneficial relations with lots of partners, not just Russia, not just China, the United States, Europe. They want all of that to be part of the picture. So uh, if confirmed, my goal would be to help them in, that, in their own goal, to reach their own goal of strengthening these other vectors we can do that in a number of ways, including by promoting a better investment climate in Kazakhstan so that more U.S. investment in business can enter and they can diversify their trading relationships. Uh, we can also, uh, with respect to oil in particular, oil and gas, have them diversify from their heavy dependence on that sector of their economy um, because it's the oil and gas that especially ties them closely both to Russia and China, both for export routes and in the case of China as a customer. So, um, so there's a number of ways that we can work on that. Um, I'm committed, if confirmed, to doing so. And uh, the important thing I think here is that it's the Kazakhstani's own goal, that is we are helping them to achieve their own goal of not being overly dependent on their neighbors. Well, thank you much, Mr. Rosenblum. Um, from one stand to another, uh, Mr. Hennick, uh, uh, you've been nominated to be our, our ambassador to Uzbekistan. Uh, as it relates to the Ukraine crisis, the State Department has repeatedly engaged the Central Asian governments uh, this year to reaffirm uh, 
U.S. support for Uzbek independence and territorial integrity, as well as the C5 plus one strategic partnership. Secretary Blinken re reiterated the administration's position during uh, Foreign Minister Kamilov, uh, his visit to uh, Washington in March, while also condemning Russia's unprovoked actions in Ukraine. I note that uh, Tashkent registered businesses have recently been hit by sanctions for engagement with Russian entities on, on the Treasury Department sanctions list. If confirmed, how would you encourage our Uzbek uh, partners to avoid such dealings as well as take a stronger stance against Russian aggression? Thank you, Senator, for that question. <clears throat> um, Uzbekistan finds itself, I think, in a very similar situation to Kazakhstan. They don't have the luxury of simply being able to, you know, cut off their relationship with Russia, you know, which, with which Russia remains their largest trading partner, major investor, obviously historical cultural ties. At the same time, Uzbekistan has proven to be a strong partner of the United States and has been sensitive to the concerns that we have expressed, certainly about Russian aggression. And I think, Senator, you, as you mentioned in your opening statement, there is a reassessment going on in the region about their relationship with Russia in light of Russia's aggression against Ukraine. And so uh, we've found that uh, we are having a productive dialogue with the government of Uzbekistan. I think the key going forward will be to be as cooperative and transparent as possible about the nature and the specifics of the sanctions that we're levying, to hear from the Uzbeks about which of these sanctions, if any, are very difficult or, or, or impossible for them to comply with, and to, uh, when necessary, as, we, as you have pointed out, Senator, to designate companies that are in violation of those sanctions to send a clear message to other private sector entities in Uzbekistan about the, the dangers of doing business with, with Russia. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, sir. Um, Mr. Uh, Vigory, COVID-19 and economic sanctions have battered the Russian economy, presenting an opportunity to encourage Central Asian countries to rethink their relationships with Moscow. As their governments warm to the idea of greater regional in integration and partnerships with the U.S., the door may also be open to exploitation by other actors, particularly China. How would you characterize uh, the Kyrgyz reaction to U.S. engagement on this issue, particularly as we also call on the host nation to respect human rights and freedom of expression? Thank you for the question, Senator. Um, Kyrgyzstan is in an unusual position. Um, many of the factors that my two colleagues outlined also hold true for Kyrgyzstan, but in addition, Kyrgyzstan is, relies for about a third of its economy on remittances from Russia. So that has a colossal economic impact on Kyrgyzstan. The jury's still out on how much of an influence the Russian economic situation is going to have on those, on those remittances. Um, I take your point on China. China owns about a third of uh, or more of Kyrgyzstan's debt, so it too exercises a huge amount of economic influence on the country. The United States has been very active in engaging Kyrgyzstan to participate in regional organizations. Some, through our assistance, um, organize electrical uh, transmission uh, through Karam and CASA 1000. 
Um, others support general connectivity. Uh, there's an interest in Kyrgyzstan in pursuing these uh, opportunities, but there is a concern in Kyrgyzstan about their two big neighbors as well. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you to all the uh, nominees who, who've, who've spoken to these issues. I've, I've learned quite a bit about that region just in, in your presentations uh, today. So um, thank you. I'll look forward to, should you be confirmed, uh, to working with all of you on some of these challenges. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Talwar, um, as, you, as you know, I was one of the lead co-sponsors of, of the Israel Normalization Act to strengthen and expand normalization between Israel and a number of countries in the region, including Morocco. I was encouraged to see other countries also begin taking baby steps toward uh, fully integrating Israel into the regional framework, such as Riyadh's recent approval of Israeli use of Saudi airspace for commercial overflights. Do you consider the Abraham Accords to be a success that we should endeavor to build upon? And uh, do you believe it's in the United States' interest to see other countries pursue normalization with Israel? Senator, thanks very much for the question. Um, I believe that the, the answer is yes. Um, I believe that the Abraham Accords have um, put us on the cusp of a potentially historic uh, transformation um, in the region. Um, and as it relates to uh, Morocco and Israel, that relationship um, is uh, going full bore. Um, and uh, you have seen literally dozens of uh, memorandums of understanding signed between the two countries in sectors ranging from agriculture to energy to supply chains. Just yesterday, there were two ministers in Rabat from Israel who signed an agreement on judicial and legal cooperation. Um, and if confirmed, this is going to be one of my highest priorities, um, I think working in two dimensions. First, uh, to help buttress and support in any way we can and consistent with the law that you mentioned, the Israel Normalization Act, Israel Relations Normalization Act, to see what we can do to, to support uh, the further building out and cementing of that relationship. Um, and then second, there's the regional dimension that you referenced uh, to connect us to the Negev Forum uh, so that we can expand the circle of peace and so that people throughout the regions begin to see and feel the tangible benefits um, of uh, peace with Israel. Thank you. So just uh, so you'll be encouraging, should you be confirmed, uh, the Moroccan government to in turn encourage other African and Middle Eastern uh, nations uh, to normalize relations with Israel. Is that accurate? Senator, yes, that is accurate. Um, and Morocco has a great deal of influence. Uh, it, it really considers itself as a um, an, an North African country, and um, uh, that will be uh, one of the things I will work on, if confirmed. Yes, sir. Given the reality we've seen in the last two years of, of the implementation and expansion of the, uh, of the accords, um, maybe you could speak a, with a little more specificity as, uh, about the uh, role they might have in the political and economic development of the region. Uh, sure, Senator. Um, I, I think um, the next phase here really um, is to uh, translate the agreements that have been made um, into actual benefits that people can feel. 
um, so that these aren't just abstract agreements sitting out there which are you know, negotiated in, in fancy rooms, um, but actually translate into benefits, economic, um, first and foremost, uh, things that transform society and make them, you know, improve them. People-to-people ties, which Morocco is really a leader on. You now have tourism booming between the two countries. Of course, there's a historic um, and long-standing Jewish community, which is very much recognized as part of the fabric of, of Morocco, which uh, stands as one of the pillars in that relationship. And there are maybe half a million um, uh, Israelis of Moroccan uh, descent, perhaps more. Uh, so that's one dimension of it. But to the extent that, um, uh, that you can show benefits on the economic front, uh, commercially, uh, in terms of other standards of living that start to rise in the region because of this, um, I think you will have a bandwagoning effect uh, that will just bolster moderates across the region. Thank you, sir. Um, before I, I move on to Mr. Hood for a, a short question, uh, I, I just wanted to speak to the effort to counter China through your role, Mr. Talwar. I, I, I commend the work of the embassy and consulate in partnering with Morocco to advance our security and economic priorities. With the 15th anniversary of our free trade agreement, Morocco continues to be a strong partner uh, in the region. Confronting economic aggression from countries such as China requires robust partnerships and a sound strategy. How should the United States continue to engage Morocco to counter China in North Africa, sir? Uh, thanks very much for the question, Senator. Um, if confirmed, uh, this will be a uh, high priority for me. Um, China is beginning to make inroads in that region, um, including um, in Morocco, and I think we have to keep a very close eye on that. Um, Morocco does not have a, um, a comprehensive strategic partnership with, um, uh, with Morocco, which is you know, their highest level of, of relationship uh, that they uh, will bestow upon uh, some of the countries. Nonetheless, um, China has been active, particularly in the cultural space. They have three Confucius Institutes. They've been training people through uh, Huawei academies. Um, we actually do more than they do um, in terms of Cisco uh, being involved there, training uh, a lot of Moroccans. Um, and uh, also, we've also been doing a lot of work through the, recently through the Development Finance Corporation. Um, and uh, that is one of the most effective tools that we have uh, to counter uh, the Chinese approach, which of course is very uh, state-centric, uh, uh, very non-transparent. Um, and uh, they're beginning to move into uh, uh, areas, for, for example, joint ventures they've proposed uh, in uh, R&D, uh, vocational training, things of that sort. Um, and I think that uh, we have to be active uh, early on uh, and uh, using the tools that Congress has provided uh, to be able to, um, uh, to work effectively against them. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the Development Finance Corporation. I, of course, am in the presence of one of the founding fathers of, of that uh, effort. That would be Senator Coons for the C-SPAN 2 cameras. Uh, and uh, I'm also glad you mentioned our private sector partners. Um, so thank you so much. Mr. Hood, uh, just a, a final question for you, sir. Um, seeing many partner parties boycott of the referendum uh, on President Saeed's constitutional amendment, it appears Tunisia's democratic institutions are at risk. 
If confirmed, how would you urge President Saeed's administration to be responsive, transparent, and accountable to the Tunisian people? Well, thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, first, I'd like to thank uh, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Rich, Chairman Meeks, and Ranking Member McCall for the statement that they made yesterday, uh, which was very helpful. I'll read just part of it here. The United States will continue to support the Tunisian people and encourage efforts to return to a transparent and inclusive system of democratic governance. We urge President Sayed to work constructively with all Tunisians and the state of emergency and take steps to restore Tunisia's separation of powers, democratic institutions, and the rule of law. If confirmed, uh, I would continue uh, these efforts, not just through uh, private meetings, but also uh, through our public support to civil society voices. One of the things that's unique about Tunisia in the region is that it has a very vibrant uh, civil society. And I think uh, that's thanks due in large part to support from the United States and from other partners. And we would continue this uh, because the voice of the people ultimately uh, in, in a democracy and especially in Tunisia uh, are the biggest levers on uh, executive power. And so if confirmed, that's what I would focus on. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you all for, once again, for your commitment to serving our great country. I thank your families, uh, some of whom uh, some uh, family members are present, and I'll look forward to doing some good together. I'm off to uh, cast an important vote for a China competition bill. So, Mr. Chairman. And I appreciate uh, the ranking member's recognition of my hard work um, with then-Chairman Corker on the DFC. I just want to congratulate you, um, Senator Young, on very hard work on a critical piece of legislation that is about to be voted into law that is the single best thing we can do to strengthen American competitiveness and innovation, to prepare us to succeed in our global competition with China, um, and to make um, a stronger and more creative nation likely for the next generation. So congratulations on what is a landmark piece of legislation. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, I now look forward to um, one round of questions, at the conclusion of which we will likely close this hearing. So um, if there's staff of any members who are intending to come and question, make sure that I know now, because um, by the agreement with the ranking member, I'm going to ask about five minutes of questions, and we will wrap this up unless I hear otherwise from the staff of some committee member. Um, first, I have a series of questions which the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, asks uh, of literally every nominee. Uh, and I note, uh, Ambassador Rosenblum, you made reference to having served under Senator Levin. Yes, he would be pleased uh, to know that we continue to exercise a forceful oversight. So um, a simple yes or no from each of the five nominees would suffice. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Yes, Senator. Yes. 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 Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. 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 Yes, Senator. Yes. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. 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 And last, do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information as requested by this committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 
Wonderful. Thank you all. Uh, Mr. Tolwar, I'll start with you. Um, I had the opportunity to speak with the President on my way back from the floor vote. He wishes you all the best. Uh, and we reminisced about how I first met you when you were in service to the then Senator on literally this committee many years ago. Um, I appreciate your raising the DFC. Um, I am a great believer in its capabilities, um, in particular as an alternative pathway to development financing that allows for higher standards, labor standards, environmental standards, and transparency. Um, how do you imagine the DFC being helpful in your future role if confirmed as U.S. Ambassador to Morocco? Uh, thanks so much for the question, Senator. And again, I do want to commend you and um, uh, Senator Corker for having authored um, the bill that, uh, and the act that created the DFC. I think it's a powerful tool uh, uh, in terms of being able to promote development in, in a way that is consistent with our values. Um, and uh, the DFC actually is becoming more active um, in Morocco. There are about uh, uh, three projects uh, which have been financed, uh, valued at over $100 million in areas like climate resiliency uh, and uh, sustainable business environment. Uh, and there are about 10 more projects, uh, actually more than 10, uh, which are in the pipeline now. Uh, and those will be in areas such as uh, health care uh, and some others as well. Um, and um, I think this is just an incredibly powerful tool, and it's coming exactly at the right time uh, in terms of this uh, upping of our game, uh, because as in my exchange with uh, Senator Young, uh, I mentioned how China is really beginning to do the same thing. And of course, um, you know, if you, if you put the side by side, um, I think uh, our approach and the, the DFC approach, free markets, transparency, environmental uh, considerations, workers' rights, stands in sharp contrast to the Chinese approach of um, you know, non-transparency, state-centric, et cetera. So I think this will be a very powerful tool. Uh, and if confirmed, I will absolutely be working closely with the DFC. And I look forward to consulting with you on this as well. Thank you. I look forward to that. Um, I've visited Morocco several times. Uh, initially principally to advocate for the Clementine exports from Morocco to the Port of Wilmington, Delaware, um, but then later for a more expanded conversation about our uh, security and values partnership. And um, I may return to ask about the Abraham Accords, but I need to, for now, keep moving, if I might. Um, Mr. Henrik, um, talk to me about how you will work to promote uh, liberalizing political and economic reforms and whether you see room for an expanded partnership between the United States and Uzbekistan in foreign assistance. Yes, Senator, absolutely. I do see room for us to continue to deepen that partnership. Uh, Uzbekistan is really at a critical juncture right now. Uh, the reform program that President Mirzoyev uh, instituted uh, began six years ago, and some of the reforms uh, have been incredibly successful. But I think they're now getting to the point where um, it's going to be more and more difficult to stay the course as you start to approach things like really strengthening civil society uh, you know, strengthening independent media, implementing rule of law. Uh, we have had, uh, and under Ambassador Rosenblum's leadership, uh, a lot of success in partnering with the government of Uzbekistan, uh, using our assistance programs, particularly in the area of rule of law, to start to strengthen these reforms. And we're starting to see real results. Uh, if confirmed, Senator, I would uh, certainly continue to use uh, those tools as well as, if I may offer, uh, I think the Development Finance Corporation also can play an, a critical role in Central Asia, where it doesn't have a large profile right now, but three of your nominees on this panel have, um, have been working uh, over the last several years to try to work with the DFC 
to make, make it clear to other uh, outside investors in the region that we too are prepared to you know, offer our own investments and investments that bring the kind of quality and, you know, and represent our values and can be a real alternative to other uh, countries in the region. Thank you, Mr. Figueroa. I, I do think, excuse me, thank you, Dr. Henrik, um, Hennick. Um, I do think one of our key challenges, uh, you're going to tell me how much time I have. Um, one of our core challenges is um, giving the DFC the resources that it needs and deserves to be able to uh, grow to scale. I'm trying to clear a, a annoying uh, budgetary uh, scoring rule that prevents them from fully utilizing equity, um, and to syndicate, to partner uh, with other nations that are also open societies and want to promote um, more transparent, uh, more sustainable alternatives to uh, Chinese financing. Um, I'd be interested, if I could, uh, Mr. Vergudi, about how you would see our working to provide alternatives um, to Chinese financing in Kyrgyzstan, but also how do we support a resurgence um, of democratic governance? Thank you for the question, sir. Um, on uh, the question of economic alternatives, I understand the U.S. Embassy has already been focused through assistance on the uh, interesting development of a potential IT sector in Kyrgyzstan, which I think reflects, the growth of this reflects the, the fact it is a more open society than some of its neighbors. The embassy also uh, has an English language program for professionals, which will also go far to promote this new sector. Uh, on the DFC itself, I understand that the embassy has been in contact with Kyrgyz officials. There the challenge is to find internationally bankable projects uh, that the D DFC will be interested in and that the Kyrgyz make available. Obviously, it'll become a, a large focus for me uh, if confirmed. Um, on democracy itself, uh, it has definitely been a unique aspect of Kyrgyzstan. Uh, we support it through assistance, through small grants. I think as an ambassador, one of my uh, most important, uh, if confirmed, my most important uh, duties is to promote the expansion of rule of law and anti-corruption uh, in Kyrgyzstan. Thank you. If I might, Ambassador Rosenblum, just continue uh, on that line. How do we use um, the tools, both support for civil society, um, advocating for democracy? How do we succeed in holding the Chinese accountable uh, for the gross human rights violations happening in Xinjiang? Um, and how... Um, how would you advance uh, our relationship with Kazakhstan? I was struck um, at their um, hesitancy, their refusal uh, to publicly embrace and endorse uh, Russia's aggression, Ukraine, Russia's um, annexation attempts, um, recognition of the so-called independent republics in the Donbass. Um, how would you work to advance these core goals? Senator, thank you uh, for the question. It's um it's, it's an ongoing challenge for Kazakhstan to be where, it's, where it is, to share these big borders and with, Kazakh, with China and Russia, and also to be so dependent on them for its trade, its, its oil exports. I think 80% of Kazakhstan's oil exports transit Russian territory, and the Russians have shown recently, just in recent months, the ability to sort of turn that tap off when they want to. And it sent a very strong message recognized by President Takayev of Kazakhstan, who has publicly said, we have to do something to diversify our oil exports and not to rely just on this pipeline. 
Um, and there are, um, there are ways that we can support them in these efforts to diversify, to um, build its relations outside of its Russia and China neighbors. Um, DFC was already mentioned. I think that could also play a role in Kazakhstan as well. Um, promoting more U.S. investment coming in, encouraging U.S. companies to locate there. Sometimes it's difficult for U.S. companies to compete on price or on the financing terms they can offer. I found this in my service in Uzbekistan repeatedly. We have to make a case, helping, working with the companies, that U.S. companies bring a value that others don't. Um, it's a long-term value, and it pays off in the long term, both in the products they make and the investments they make in people. Um, we've seen this repeatedly in Uzbekistan, and I expect the same would be true in Kazakhstan, if, I, if I'm confirmed. Um, you also mentioned the uh, situation with the um, human rights abuses, the atrocities in Xinjiang, and Kazakhstan's position on that. I think it's important to emphasize that um, again, Kazakhstan faces the reality of having this big, powerful neighbor that it depends on for so much. At the same time, um, there are a million and a half Kazakhs living in Xinjiang, many of whom have also been victims of the repression there. And as a result, Kazakhstan, in, in my view, has done what it can to protect people, for example, who escape, who, who cross the border, and uh, they've, they've consistently followed a non-refoulement policy. They haven't sent people back. Um, if I'm confirmed, I'll continue to press for that policy to continue, as well as to allow victims of Chinese repression in Kazakhstan to organize and speak out freely, um, to highlight the, the human rights abuses there. So... Um, it's, a, it's, not a, it's not always an easy issue to deal with in the context of Kazakhstan, and yet I think we have a, a strong enough partnership that we can continue to promote accountability for, the, for the, uh, the, the, the horrific human rights abuses in Xinjiang. Well, if I might, for all three of you, I'm, I'm grateful for the, the skill and the study and the experience and the uh, diligence uh, you will bring to these three absolutely critical Central Asian republics. Um, it is a part of the world that does not get the attention that it deserves um, here in the Congress, um, but that is critical um, to the future. They were at the crossroads of commerce for centuries. They are at the center of renewed um, focus and attention by China and Russia. Um, and our ability to show what um, free and open societies can do and what democracy uh, can bring. Forgive me, I'm getting a call from the floor. Um, uh, I just I look forward to hearing from you and supporting you in, in your service in these nations. Last, if I might, Mr. Hood, um, I remember well um, a visit to Tunisia um, around the time that the quartet um, received the Nobel Prize. Um, it was exciting. There was a vibrancy to the democracy and civil society there. We uh, met with a very wide range of leaders uh, from parliament, from the judiciary, uh, from the executive, and the striking backsliding, the transformation back to uh, an authoritarian state in, in recent days is truly alarming. Um, I'd be interested in how um, you think uh, we can best strengthen civil society, how we can push back on Putin's misinformation. Um, there is an active and successful disinformation campaign that is leading many on the continent uh, to believe that it's American sanctions and actions, not Russia's aggression, that are causing skyrocketing food and um, fertilizer and fuel prices. Um, so how do we counter Russian disinformation, strengthen civil society, 
um, and maintain true to our values while also maintaining this critical strategic relationship. Thank you for the question, Senator. I think in a word I would say engagement. Uh, I hope that we can welcome you back to Tunisia along with your colleagues because I think it is uh, critical and powerful when representatives of our legislative branch visit us uh, at our embassies overseas and engage with our uh, foreign interlocutors. Um, I think that's all the more important in a place like Tunisia uh, where they have been going through political turbulence and where Tunisians are calling out for change. Uh, they're hungry, they're tired, they're unemployed. They want their country to have economic prosperity while also having the government protect their fundamental rights. And uh, that's exactly what I'm gonna try to help them to do if I'm confirmed uh, through our engagement, through our uh, assistance programs that we are shifting to focus more on amplifying the voices of civil society and institutions and organizations that can hold accountable uh, executive power, no matter what uh, the result of the uh, referendum or the uh, legislative elections that are projected for December. Uh, with regard to the misinformation, I think we still have a very powerful voice in the United States of America, and so I will use it. I will... Uh, ask for help from the legislative branch and from uh, other parts of Washington as well, but as well our group of seven uh, partners that the administration has been working with diligently uh, for the past year to make clear uh, what the world's democracies expect and uh, hope to see in Tunisia, not just for the people but also for the government. Thank you. Um, let me make a closing comment if I might. Every time I uh, have the opportunity to visit uh, one of our embassies overseas. I try to visit with uh, mid-level um, career foreign service officers, uh, civil servants, um, foreign nationals who work as part of our embassy teams, uh, and ask for ideas and suggestions um, for ways that we could make the life of foreign service families in particular, um, but the lives of all who serve with us as development and diplomacy professionals easier. Uh, I do now chair the um, subcommittee of appropriations that funds the State Department and USAID. This committee will be considering an authorizing bill um, on August 3rd. Um, and there are small but important things. Uh, one of the things currently being debated is providing access to the Internet as a utility in a way that in countries where it is incredibly expensive to make it available without draining the household resources. Ways that we can have uh, dual career families where they work for different agencies or work in the public sector and private sector more successfully transition from post to post. Um, we talked in a hearing yesterday about the importance of having paid internships to promote diversity within the ranks of the Foreign Service. All of this interests me intensely, and I appreciate that several of you raised that as an ambassador, uh, the safety and the security and the vibrancy of the many people who serve our nation are the posts for which you will, if confirmed, be responsible, um, encouraged me because um, paying attention to the needs of those who dedicate their lives to representing us overseas is an important part um, in my view, of your service and of mine. Um, let me close uh, by thanking Sarosh and Dominique, Catherine, Sharon, and Anne um, for being here and for supporting uh, your spouses and your families. And if I got this right, and I probably didn't, um, Harrison, Ilias, Oscar, Carmen, um, and I think Fiona and Henry, William, George, and Clara, 
Um, many of you cited um, your parents as inspiration um, for your taking um, this step forward. Puneet talking about your parents taking the risk of coming uh, to the United States. Um, um, parents who served in our military uh, overseas. Parents who um, are not able to witness this today but who supported you. And then spouses and children who've been a part of your career of service. Thank you all for what you do to represent our nation in difficult, distant, dangerous parts of the world and know that all of us in the Senate appreciate your service. Um, the record for this hearing will remain open until tomorrow, the close of business on Thursday, July 28th. So uh, for any staff who are listening, make sure any questions for the record are submitted no later than Thursday. And with that, this confirmation hearing is adjourned.